Is that, are everyone's hands about raw at this point from washing them so much? I know I barely have any skin left. <clears throat> um, real quick, look at the very back of your bulletin. We've added a new feature. Sermon notes, lined paper. We got those on there, yes, Heather? So for, for the, the note takers, woohoo, and for you who don't take notes, well, now is the day to start. All right. I love today's gospel passage because there is uh, such a continuity with what we heard in the story of Nicodemus last week. In fact, in the first uh, five chapters of John, there are quite a few encounters, one-on-one encounters with Jesus uh, that show us uh, much about the Father's heart working in and through Jesus. And I believe and just want to say right from the start that God, that Jesus wants to encounter each individual in this room today in a deeper way than when you came in here this morning. So does anybody in here um, feel that they have all of God they need? <laughs> I know I would not raise my hand to that. So uh, let's just open our hearts and work through this passage and look at how uh, Jesus walks into the life of this woman and she is forever changed. Um, it's a it's a beautiful picture of the father heart of God for broken sinners. Uh, Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus, he would later go on and write a letter in the New Testament. And he said this in one of his letters. He says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, God's heart is that all would encounter him and have a life changing experience in and through uh, the person of his son, Jesus. So let's look at John chapter four. Uh, it tells us that this is a Samaritan woman that's very important, uh, was, was drawing water at a well, and Jesus uh, approaches her at the well. Now this uh, right away um, is a, a major red flag because this is a shocking departure from tradition and cultural norms. What Jesus is doing here in crossing this boundary and speaking with this woman is quite unprecedented and unconventional and to, to say the least, Samaritans were descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, who had intermarried with Gentile nations when they were exiled. So they were looked down upon by full-blooded Jews as half Jew, half Gentiles. They were enemies of the Jews. They were seen as people of compromise, heretics. And since they had intermingled with Gentiles, they were in a perpetual state of uncleanness in the eyes of, of the Jews, the Israelites. Now, they, they also, there are a couple other things that really bothered the Jews is that they had their own version of Torah. They only followed the first five books of, of the Old Testament. And they had their own place of worship, their own temple, which we see come up in the passage later on in the passage. So... For Jesus to come up to this woman and begin to talk to her alone is a radical act of crossing over cultural and traditional boundaries. You see, God will not be stopped by cultural and traditional boundaries from reaching the broken and lost people that he loves and wants to win over into his family. So Jesus says to her, give me a drink. The reason these words are so shocking is because, you see, being in a perpetual state of uncleanness, according, according to Jewish tradition, for Jesus to say, let's share a common cup, 
is quite shocking. And that's what it is. It's an invitation to share a common cup at this well. And this is why the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? And then John tells us in those little brackets, for Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. That's a reference to sharing common uh, cups or, or, or plates of silverware. They didn't share common things because of their perception of the Samaritans being unclean. So I think that you can see, and clearly Jesus is not afraid of coronavirus either because he's ready to share a cup with her, but um, he, th- there's, this is a shocking scene. This is a shocking scene, and it's why his disciples are quite flabbergasted when they come back to him later in the passage and see that he's interacting with this woman. The other thing is that um, sometimes wells were understood as places where you'd be looking for a a partner for marriage uh, because of Moses and Isaac's wives being found at, at wells. And so it was quite radical that Jesus was here. But he interacts with her nonetheless. And she says... How is it that you could ask me for this? This doesn't make sense. Why are you even here? You're going to get yourself in trouble. You certainly are going to be looked down upon uh, by your own people. And Jesus says in verse 10, these, these powerful words, he says, if you knew the gift of God, let's say that together, the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The gift of God. The grace of God. It, it, it crosses cultural boundaries. It crosses religious boundaries. It crosses conventional boundaries to meet people in their brokenness. Grace is uncommon in its operations. The grace of God is uncommon in its operations. It reaches out to those who are considered unclean by everyone else. You see those people that are around us in the in the strip clubs and in the bars and in 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 uh, prostituting themselves out with, that we think are so far from the kingdom. Jesus says, actually, those are the ones I'm after. Those are the ones that I came for. Those are the ones over whom there will be much rejoicing in heaven. And we will see in just a moment that this is a woman who has a reputation. So what Jesus is saying to her: If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift? As we'll see, it's, it's him. It's him. If you knew the gift of God, it's him. And he, so he's saying to her, if you only knew, if you knew the, that, that God saw beyond the Jew and Samaritan divide, if you knew that God sees every detail of your sinful life and still wants to make you his child, you would have asked me for something and I would give it to you. You see, living water is a it, water is a, something that Jesus uses constantly. Remember last week with Nicodemus? Remember what he said to Nicodemus? You must be born of water and the spirit. Now, in, in the Greek, that, and I didn't bring this up last week, but in the Greek, that is dom, those, both of those words are dominated by one preposition. And so it could be better translated, you must be born of the water of the spirit. Born of the water of the Spirit. And then we looked at at how Jesus was referring to the Ezekiel prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 36, where God said, there will come a day when I will sprinkle them with clean water and I will put my spirit within them. I will write my laws on their hearts and I'll be their people and they will be my God. There's a day coming when my relationship with my people will deepen and they will have my very spirit dwelling in them. And so Jesus is speaking to her about the gift of the, of the life-changing, the, the heart-shaping, the renewing, transforming power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's what she needs. 
Now, in the ancient world, wells... I found this very interesting, and I've got this from a, from a Bible scholar, but wells were thought to be places of divine encounter because water symbolized purity and divinity and things like that. And so wells were thought to be places of divine encounter or holy sites. So it makes you wonder, what was this woman longing for? Was she there longing for an encounter of some sort? Was, was she longing for a God encounter? Was she feeling the emptiness of moving from, from man to man in her life, never finding true love and satisfaction? Perhaps she's a picture of the many people today in our own day who are aware of their deep spiritual longings and they're, they're looking to uh, new age spiritual teachings and pilgrimages and yoga retreats and psychedelic experiences and mediums and psychics and, and all of these things in search of meaning, in search of, of something more feeling that hunger and that thirst in their souls for something that is beyond us. But you see, friends, only Jesus, only Jesus can meet the deepest longings of the human soul. St. Paul was writing a letter to the Colossians and he said this, he's talking about Jesus and he said, all things were created through him and for him, including us. We were created for him for relationship with Him, and for His glory. And so Jesus is inviting this this broken woman into a relationship with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. See how all three persons of the Godhead are always involved in God encounters? You see, this is so important for us to take to, to grab this point about what Jesus is offering because it's impossible to have a genuine encounter with Jesus and not be changed by the Spirit of God. It's impossible. Too many people in our day, so-called Christians, good church-going Christians, confuse knowing Jesus with knowing about Jesus. And it's so important that we understand what relationship with Jesus really is. It's something that can only be born of the Holy Spirit of God coming onto us and in us. And, and many people have, have never actually truly, fully yielded themselves to this, this life-changing new birth, as Jesus calls it. And so Jesus is inviting this woman into an encounter. This encounter, it's like living water that refreshes the soul and slakes the thirst for meaning, for peace with God, our thirst for love. And Jesus says, I'll offer that to you by relationship with God. And so she says to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. Now, she's not really picking up what Jesus is laying down, just like Nicodemus last week. Initially, she's not picking up what he's laying down. She's not getting it. She's still thinking kind of on an earthly level. And she's like, show me this stream that you have access to so I don't have to keep drinking this crummy well water. But Jesus is is bringing her into something so much more. Now, we scoot down in the passage a little bit. To verse 16, you see, Jesus so desperately desires to give us this living water, but he also sees that our brokenness and sin need to be dealt with. That because they can hinder us from receiving what he wants to give us. And that's the case with this Samaritan woman. And so he says to her, go call your husband. Go bring your husband. And she says, oh, I'm not married. I don't have a husband right now. And he says, yeah, you've had five just think about being in her position for a second. Like, is this guy reading my mail? What's going on? Yes, you've had five husbands. It's true what you say. And the man that you have now is not your husband. You see, Jesus 
He's not afraid to confront our sin. He'll, he'll challenge anything that stands in our way of having a relationship with him. Jesus will challenge anything in us that stands in the way of the radical love of God that would bring us into communion with himself. And so he confronts her. And what does she do? She changes the subject. <laughs> oh, sir, I see you're a prophet. Um, however, did you know that you Jews say that you worship on your mountain, but we worship over here on our mountain, on Mount Gerizim? That's where our temple is. And she kind of tries to draw him into a worship debate. And Jesus, in his gentleness and his tenderness, he goes along with it. And he engages her in this little dialogue about what worship is. But what he's doing is he's bringing her right back around to the real thing that stands before her, which is the opportunity to have an encounter with the living God. You see, he's relentless in his pursuit of us. And we try to run away from him. We often try to change the subject. We kind of try to keep things at a surface level. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to go deeper in your heart. I want all of you. I want to bring you into an encounter that you've not yet had. I want to bring you into a fullness that you've not yet experienced. And he continues to pursue her. And so they get into this little back and forth about where's the true temple. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, no, salvation is from the Jews. He wants her to have a true image of who the true God is. He said, you guys are off a little bit in your understanding of God. You've rejected some of his revelation to the Jews. But then he says this. God is spirit. Or he says this, let me back up. But the hour is coming and is now here. This is a new age. Something new is happening. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. She wanted to debate that God was locked up in the Samaritan temple. And he shows her, no, 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 no. The place of worship. It's not a place. It's not a where. It's a how and it's a who. He directs her attention to who the true God is and what it means to truly know him. And that is to worship him in spirit and in truth. There's two things about this statement. You see, worship must be something that the spirit of God is doing in us. Worship must be something that the Spirit of God is doing in us, stirring our affections in our hearts. Otherwise, we're just singing and saying prayers. But worship becomes worship when God is stirring in our hearts with the truth of who He is, with a vision of who He is and all of His majesty and His worthiness and calling us into a place where we're actually heart, soul, mind, and strength stirred even in our emotions and our affections in our worship, in, our, in, in all of us. The second thing is this, is worship, because he says truth, worship must be based on a true understanding of who God is. It's, it's a common uh, sort of cliche in our culture to say, just worship God as you know him or as you understand him to be. And Jesus would say to us, it's important to have a true image of who the true God is or else your worship will be deficient. And so he wants us to have both of those things, the work of the Holy Spirit in us and a true understanding and vision of who God is in his character and his nature and his person. You see, God is he's both holy. He's, he's clothed with splendor and majesty, Psalm 104 says. And if we don't have a vision of that, it'll be hard to really feel like he's worthy of worship. He demands our allegiance. He demands our worship because he's worthy of it. And then on the other hand, he's the most tender-hearted, patient, and compassionate father one could ever imagine. 
And you can't be off balance with either of those things. You have to have both of them. And sometimes it's hard for us because some of us base our image of God the Father on an earthly father or an earthly father figure who, who did not do, do us right, who was deficient in their love for us. And Jesus says, no, God is holy. He, he's the giver of the commandments and the law. He, he expects us to live in a certain way, but he's the most tender, passionate, compassionate, forgiving father who desires fellowship with his kids. And we have to have both of those things to have true worship in spirit and in truth. You see, I think what this passage reveals to us today, and it's a reminder, it's a reminder of our, our need, all of our need to have an encounter with the love of the Father. Because it, it worship, we, we won't be able to worship unless we've had that deep personal encounter with the love of the Father for us. His deep, uh, his presence overwhelming us in, in the way that he gives himself to us. And if we don't have that encounter with our, with our love, it will affect having our, a right image of him. You see, and so we have to have the right image of who he is because it will determine how we live in relationship to God and how we worship him. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, famously said this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Then he goes on and he says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. For this reason, he says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. You see how utterly and profoundly important it is to understand both his glory and his majesty, his holiness and his gentleness and his goodness. In his love, those things are brought together in perfection and the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, if you see the Heavenly Father as dissonant, kind of, kind of, he's way off there, and maybe sometimes I could get his attention if I pray really hard. If you see him like that, or if you see him as the sin hound dog, anybody ever thought about him as like the sin hound dog who's, who's ready to pounce on you? He's hot on your trail when you mess up. Or, or you see him as the hard-to-please dad who keeps the newspaper in front of his face when you're trying to talk to him and get his love. See, if you have that vision of God as the Father, it will be difficult to give him our love, to return our love in worship and in relationship with him. Our relationship will suffer. But, and this is what this passage reminds us of and gives us an image of, if you see him as the God who walks into your life meets you at whatever well it is at which you're looking for meaning and begins to speak into your life and confronts your sin with patience and gentleness and invites you to drink of His Spirit, then you will have a relationship grounded in His eternal love for you. You see how big of a difference it makes all depending on our image of who God is. And in this beautiful story, Jesus once again reminds us that God is on a mission of mercy and grace to this world that's in rebellion against Him. This woman was living in a, a adultery, fornication, outside sexual immorality, broken relationships. And yet He goes after her, defying every cultural boundary because His fatherly heart looked down at her and said, I love her. 
I want her to be my daughter. And it's those words that God speaks over every single one of us to win us over to his love. In Ephesians chapter 3 in the New Testament, St. Paul is writing a letter to, to early Christians and he's telling them that he's praying for them. And one of the things he says is this because he knew he understood so well that if you weren't grounded in the, in the love of Christ, it would be so hard to live the Christian life. And he said this, he said, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and, and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, only when we are rooted and grounded and assured of the love of Christ can we actually be filled with all the fullness of God. And so many times our mental image of who God is stands in the way from us walking a life that is full of His Holy Spirit, full of Holy Spirit joy, full of Holy Spirit power, full of Holy Spirit gifts, full of Holy Spirit worship, because our image of God has become distorted. He's a Father who longs and desires relationship with us. So I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, And sometimes, probably more often than I'd care to admit, I have these sort of breakdowns when I'm praying and the love of the Father just weeping before Him, thinking about who I was when when He came in and walked into my life. I was at a well of disgusting things, looking for meaning, and He walked into my life and called my attention to Him and broke open my, my hard heart. And it often brings me to tears thinking about it. But you know, behind every strong professional persona behind the determined to win athlete behind the successful entrepreneur behind the tough as nails survivor of abuse behind the sin sick addict behind the committed servaholic is a child who just needs a big hug from abba father and maybe a good cry in his arms a fresh baptism in his love Julian of Norwich, I want to read you something from one of her devotionals. She was, I think, a 14th century mystic. And uh, she says this. It's a reminder of, of, of the amazing love of, of the God we serve. She says, of all the sights, she was given visions, revelations of who God is. And she said, of all the sights, it was most comfort to me that our God and Lord, who is so worthy of respect and so fearsome, is also so plain and gracious. And this filled me almost full with delight and security of soul. She says, for the interpretation of this, he showed me this clear example. It is the most honor that a solemn king or great lord can do for a poor servant if he is willing to be friendly with him. And specifically, if he demonstrates it himself from a full true intention with a glad countenance, both privately and publicly, then thinks this poor creature thus, ah, How could this noble Lord give more honor and joy to me than to show me, who am so little, this marvelous friendliness? Truly, it is more joy and pleasure to me than if he gave me great gifts and were himself distant in manner. She says this bodily example was shown so mightily that man's heart could be carried away and almost forget itself for joy over this great friendliness. It's the heart of our God. She captures both things. She says he's worthy of all respect. He's fearsome. 
And he's tender and friendly and kind. Beautiful. As we come to a close, I just want to comment briefly on the Romans 5 reading that we saw tonight. It was very hard, not, it was hard, hard to choose uh, which passage to preach on because this is one of my favorites, Romans 5. But I felt the Lord said we needed to, to look at John 4. But Paul tells us, and by the way, as you saw in the story, the woman at the well was profoundly transformed. She, she realizes that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, and she runs back to her hometown and says, come and see what, what an evangelistic proclamation. Come and see Jesus. Come and meet him for yourself. A man who told me everything about me. His, his gaze pierced my soul. He looked into me. It made me uncomfortable, but there was also a warmth and an invi- invitation to it. And it changed me. Come and see. Isn't it beautiful? The change that happens when we yield ourselves to these encounters with Jesus. Romans chapter 5, Paul says that because we are justified by faith we have peace with god you know what it means to be to be justified it means to be declared righteous it means to be declared in one sense what we are in fact not it means that god has spoken over us righteous holy sanctified purified cleansed And it was all because of the willingness of the one who we gather to worship today picked up the cross and walked to Calvary and upon it he hung so that we could be reconciled to our gracious Father. Paul uses the words, he says, we have obtained access. By his grace we have obtained access it's a, it's a court that's, it's a term that's used in royal courts for those few select people who have access to the king. And he says, that's the access that we have been given through the blood of Christ to the presence of our Father. And it's all because, as Paul says, God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's why we come together in the midst of a viral pandemic to give him the, 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 the honor and the praise that's rightfully due him because of the great love with which he loved us.